This week on FX Guide TV. We explore Uncharted Territory's work on Anonymous. This and more coming up next. Hello, I'm Angie Dale and welcome to our 125th FX Guide TV. Roland Emmerich is best known for Independence Day 2012, Godzilla and a host of VFX destruction fests. Yet with his new film Anonymous, the effects challenge was to recreate a Tudor London and uncharted territory delivered, as Mike Seymour found out when he sat down with them in LA last week. We all know William Shakespeare, the most famous author of all time, writer of 37 plays, 154 sonnets. But what if I told you Shakespeare never wrote a single word. Yeah, Roland said very early on, there were, there were two things about this. That, um, he said, I would like to show London and create London like nobody has ever seen it before. Like it really was. And we can only do that with visual effects, of course. Um, one thing that we noticed early on is that a lot of the um, historical movies that are being shot in locations are well, at first shot in pretty much the same locations. <laughs> and, uh, and the second thing also, these are obviously usually not the locations that, uh, that were there in, in the 16th uh, or 17th century. And so we decided early on to, to rebuild it in the computer with whatever means we have, uh, which turned out to be actually full 3D in the end. And, um, and build it to, uh, very accurately to, uh, to plans from that time before London burned in, in 1666. So you had the Alexa on this project, mm -hmm. and technically it was at the very outset of Alexa's um, digital capture process because it was very new. Yeah. How did the camera perform and how did you find the files for the work you were doing in terms of keying? Because you used the raw files, didn't you, mm. Codex? No, we couldn't. Um, oh, really? The, um, uh, the Alexa in those days, they had seven prototypes in the world. We got four or five of them, I think. There was no raw recording yet. Uh, all the internal recording features that are there now weren't there. But we decided anyway because so, the sensor... So what did you record on? We actually record on a codex. Okay. Um, so we, we took the uh, HD-SDI uh, signal, the, the, the dual HD-SDI signal, out into the Codex machine. And Codex was quite interesting because I found out after a little while that the Codex internally records on a JPEG 2000 codec, basically a 1 to 4 compression, which is uh, pretty much about the same as the Sony uh, SRW DeX do. Um, and, uh, but then when you output it again, it spits out a full DPX file. Uh, one thing we wanted to do, which we did at uh, Sony already for 2012, is have a full digital pipeline that we record that anything that's recorded by any unit anywhere uh, would be going onto a server. It used to be there was a 400 terabyte server actually on uh, 2012, which we obviously couldn't afford on this. But in this one, I calculated through if I have a one to four compression with less shooting days and so on, we can probably uh, make do with a 25 terabyte server, which we built for. I don't know what, $8,000 or something like that. But let me geek out for a second. Is that coming out as a 1920 by 1080 signal out of the area yes. at this point? Yes. But you did have the S-Log or were you having to deal with a Rec. 709? Yeah, it was not Rec. 709, it was S-Log. Okay, so that gave so, you a lot more grading latitude, of course. Uh, yes, absolutely. So latitude was perfectly fine and uh, it was really just the, the image size since the raw format actually supports a wider, a, a bigger image than 1920 that we didn't have. So, right. so we had to go with the uh, with the regular. Which meant framing needed to be more precise because you didn't have that sort of blow up kind of... Yeah. 
even though we had a, a 240 extraction out of the 16 by 9 frame, so we always had headroom, right. but nothing left and right. Because I've heard the director speak and he credits the fact that you had a completely viable green screen solution as the enabling aspect of the film in its current form. Because contrary to what you might think from the great work you've done, this isn't a sort of a mega budget $100 million film. So even though I think the, the trailer does look like a very, very big budget film, you weren't given sort of unlimited pockets of money to deal with, were you? Mm, not exactly, no. No, it was a very lower budget approach. and. I mean, also Roland talked about it uh, very early that uh, we said, you know, what guys, I mean, we have to really come up with some incredibly clever solutions here. Not that we don't have to do that usually, but um, this is really where we have to uh, think about every single shot in minute detail. And, and he also then uh, asked me especially uh, to uh, be sort of the, um, the keeper of the shot count so okay. to speak. So when the, at the moment that I figure out that there's a sequence um, that comes out of editorial while we're still shooting and let's say uh, it's 35 shots instead of 22 shots and it can't be edited any other way then I'm the first to go to Roland and say we have to find another sequence where we shave off some shots and that's actually how we worked throughout the whole movie. So what was your final shot count? Uh, it was pretty much exactly 300 shots. Okay. Yeah. So you've got a lot of green screens in shot. Mm -hmm. Now, in the interiors, there's a lot of um, diffusing of light caused by the candle smoke. Mm -hmm. In the exterior, there's a lot of fog. And in both cases, if I was shooting green screen, I'd want a pretty clean screen. What, what did you do about that? Did you just... Well, we had, um, of course, we tried to stay away from, um, uh, from shooting uh, a lot of fog in front of the green screen and I think there was many Volker was mostly on set so it was his job to always uh, run to the special effects guys and say you know take it down a little bit and then Roland would come give me more fog and we would say no take it down and it was kind of like back and forth like this uh, but in the end we would add uh, we used uh, uh, deep compositing for this we had uh, actually ion fusion right uh, tools for us and and we used for the first time uh, a world space coordinate system which then uh, allowed us to, uh, to totally interactively, of course, easily in compositing, change the fog level uh, of all of the shots. And, uh, so for people that aren't so familiar, with, with a normal depth map, I would get a value that this is at a particular point, it's a particular grayscale, it tells me how far back it is in Z. But with your work, what was so revolutionary about it is that you actually got a deep composite that told you for this atmospheric element out of 3D, if I placed it anywhere in the scene, I would get a different number mm -hmm. for how to put it in. So that would have given you, which obviously is the case, a really realistic handle on how the diffusion would, would happen, how the fog would sit in. But that's yeah, and it, it, it worked, worked for a lot of things because um, it's it's very easy also to uh, to literally uh, one of the most important things is to attach things in 3D space without yeah. necessarily rendering that. We used it for I mean there's a lot of well actually I have to be careful because a lot of different techniques that we use a lot of different things that actually the the programmers at Ion did for us and we had our internal programmer also uh, Robert Zelsch who did a lot of that work and. Um, for instance, on top of that, we use the, the particle system within Fusion to populate all the chimneys, for instance. So we, right. we wrote a little system where literally you could just, just, uh, just draw a point in the world 
space coordinates in the, yeah. in, the, in, the, in the world position pairs. Draw a little point here, 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 and then Fusion would automatically put a put a particle emitter there and would uh, would put the uh, the chimney smoke in. Now the normal problem mm -hmm. with well not the normal problem it's so new <laughs> the mm -hmm. problem with deep compositing if there is one is that if you are doing a particle sim you generate a lot of data but then you can leave the particle sim data a, a, you know put it down somewhere archive it off because all you need is the final output render. Mm -hmm. But with deep compositing, once you generate that data, you have to hold it right the way through the composite. So if you're doing compositing with deep data, all the files become big. I mean, it, it, all along the pipeline. Like, did you find that, that you had to? Yes, it is the case. I mean, it, it's literally, obviously, it's, it's one more pass that we render. It would, didn't make a huge difference, I think, because we already had 20 different passes that we would render in CG. Okay. Uh, so this was just one more pass. I don't remember exactly if it was a lot bigger, but uh, you know, hard drive space is so cheap these days. We literally just just went out. Okay, give me another two terabyte drive. We plug it into the server. Well, let me ask you about those twenty passes. Then were you trying to do a lot of the final balancing in composite because you were doing multi-pass out of three D, or were you trying to nail it in the render? Yes. No. We try. We tried, of course, to to nail it as much in the render, but it it turned out that it. Uh, it, it was very difficult since we have the entire city of, of London there, which were literally tens of thousands of buildings. And uh, they were built with a system that we call the Ogle system, uh, which is Lego backwards. And uh, what we did is literally we built them in, in stages. We found out that, that pretty much we have about three different types of buildings in, in that time. One is the, the regular half-timbered houses, one is stone houses, but family houses, and the other building is, is literally a one-off where these are the, the, the palaces, the big churches, and so on. So what we did for all the stone houses and the, um, uh, the half-timbered houses is we built one story of it and did 10 different versions. So one story with uh, uh, one door, two doors, three windows, two windows, and so on. And we did a second story, same thing, 10 different versions. So now you've got 10 times 10 houses already, so that gives you 100 different versions, basically. Then we had about 10 different roofs. We had uh, thatched roofs and, and different kind of tiles and whatever. So now you got 10 times 10 times 10, you got 1,000. Different, uh, different buildings, and those you would reuse then in different places, and we would populate them into the, onto the actual map of, of London. We had these three major locations that we needed. One was close to the theatre, one was the London Bridge that bridges um, the two sides of the, of the city bank side with the actual city of London, and then you have part of the city of London um, where some of our protagonists are waiting for the crowd. We wanted to create a London that teachers could actually go with school classes to and, and, and point out either, several, either specific buildings, specific streets, cathedrals. Um, and so what we did is we actually found a map of London from the time and we used that as the guide. So when you actually see uh, an area of London, we put every street where every street was. On the other hand, we shouldn't forget that there is a little bit of uh, artistic license in there. I mean, there were these two, three shots where we had set it up and then Roland would actually come and say, you know what, we need to know that the Tower of London is actually on the right side behind the London Bridge, otherwise everybody's going to be completely confused. Right. Of course, we would go like, yeah, but you wouldn't really see the tower from this angle. And he said, like, can we move it just a little bit over to the left so it actually is just in frame? And so we would do that. But there's one other shot that I just fell in love with, which was um, a shot of a funeral procession that was happening a, a down the Thames. And this is a, 
a very unusual view of London because we have seen quite a lot of period dramas over the years. I've never seen a shot like this. Yeah, it has, has a very interesting history and that is uh, in, the, in the first, not even the f only in the first version of the screenplay, I want to say like also in the fourth version of the screenplay that we read, there was still no winter sequence in the movie. And had a discussion with Roland where he said, um, I think because it's autumn here and then we, we are a couple months later, we have to show uh, Oxford in front of his house and it's actually snow and then from there on it was a little bit like oh which also means then when we have the funeral procession um, it should also be winter and then Roland had this idea where he said I'm pretty sure the funeral procession was in the streets somewhere but if we have winter and we actually know that the Thames was completely frozen it was frozen solid so you could actually walk from the uh, bankside to the city and uh, why don't we just put the funeral procession in the middle of the river, of the frozen river? Open up one of the, one of the uh, parts of the bridges of the London Bridge, and then do this sweeping helicopter shot, which I always love to call the balloon shot. But uh, um, to actually go, come out of the either like snow flurries or clouds, uh, fly towards the bridge, over the bridge, and then do sort of a. Um, what is it, a 90 or 100 degree angle then and get really close to the, to the people in the procession that are walking there. Because it works so well emotionally as well because it's a very bleak place that we find our heroes at at this point. And so those colour palettes which are completely muted, the, mm. the complete absence of warmth from the, it just all seemed to work so well in the story. Yeah. But, but then you still had to populate that with uh, agents, presumably if you're using Massive, yes, which would have yeah. been a big part of it because mm -hmm. uh, there are very key plot points about how crowds move. It's not just like incidental yeah. stuff for an establishing shot. Yes. It's, uh -huh. it's almost absolutely essential for the audience to understand what's going on with the movements of masses of people at yeah. certain points in the script. Yeah, and it was always a mixture between, we did a motion capture session actually in Munich um, and we also did a lot of hand animation because we had a lot of things where people were row in rowboats, for instance, and if you look at some of the shots, like one of the big establishing shots where all the, the people are um, gathering together to go into the Globe Theatre, the newly built Globe Theatre. People are rowing over the Thames, and yeah. we literally, there's uh, dozens of little rowboats, and each rowboat has eight to nine people actually rowing in it, and we pay a lot of attention to all those little details, and, um, and some of it, like either the, the people walking and, and standing there were massive, other ones were actually hand animated and manually put in and we had little people actually on the uh, on the rigging of the ships climbing up there and working on it so if you look at that shot it has an enormous amount of detail we even have cats on roofs um, that we that we hand animated and, and and things like that and also for what is one of my favorite shots in the film which is that breathtaking shot of the funeral procession on the Thames which must have been 20,000 massive agents yeah yeah I was gonna say that would have been a pretty big sim I imagine yes there was plus also what we noticed after a while that even in that even though the people are literally that small you know we go a little bit closer towards the end of the shot used to be longer shot by the way too and it got cut a little bit shorter over time as the movie got shorter <laughs> um, so we were closer in the beginning so we had to be very careful there we noticed that we had to do cloth simulation so even one thing you know is that even if, if, if a person is, is only four or five pixels uh, tall on the screen, 
you do see a difference. There is uh, something about it that makes them more robotic looking uh, if you just have the mocap and no cloth sim. Especially, I think, in this because there were these costumes where all the women uh, wear these very long, you know, uh, uh, robes and and things like that. So it's um, it was it was necessary to do that. So a twenty thousand people with cloth sim. The other thing is that. Uh you mentioned cats, but there are actually quite a lot of horses because this is that, uh, mm -hmm. of that era. Mm -hmm. So did you have agents for horses as well? Or? We didn't do it with Massive. Those were, uh, the horses were um, partially uh, hand animated and uh, we had some uh, mocap data actually that was from a library from a German company, I don't remember the name right now, that we bought. And, um, uh, but most of it was, was hand animated actually. In terms of the king, I mean, uh, did you find that uh, there were any aspects about it? I mean, for example, did you like having the green screen more lit and higher saturation on the uh, ARRI footage? Or was there anything about the king that helped you? Uh, yeah, keying is, is, is very interesting because you can't really, or what I notice is you can't really make a flat statement about how to, how to light the green screen. Because one of the problems is usually that um, if you have very dark scenes, um, you would really want to bring up the foreground a lot more and bring the green screen down a lot more because otherwise you really get, get very strong edges that are very, very tough to key out. And we had some very, very difficult scenes. Um, um, we, uh, we always joked with our costume designer and we said, Lizzie, you cannot do that. Please don't do that. But Roland really wanted it. We had these huge collars that Queen Elizabeth was wearing and they were all half transparent. Ah. Um, so now we had, of course, you know, any little bit in the, in the green screen, like any seam, uh, even our tracking marks really hurt us in the end. Because oh, really? we created little LED tracking marks and we thought we did tests with it and we thought it was a great idea. Would never do that again, um, because they were actually the problem with that is is they couldn't you couldn't dim them you know they were one 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 brightness and you, we popped them on, uh, so now of course the green screen though would have been dimmed for different scenes and have different levels so sometimes they they would actually overexpose and we literally couldn't key them anymore and paint them out even though we used green LEDs because LEDs are thought to be a good idea because you quite often get your green screen out of focus and as a consequence yes. your tracking markers become quite hard to track and an yeah. LED is a is a high con kind of smaller dot, but, yeah. but it caused you problems because it was coming through the transparent uh, materials? Well, or? well yes, but well, the problem was that literally you have so many different lighting scenarios for the green screen and, and literally you have different, um, different brightness levels that you need to put on the green screen for different, different sequences. Right. Um, it has, sometimes it has something to do with um, uh, the, the DP and the director, of course, wanting to see really what it looks like. They don't want you to really brighten up the level in front so much that it looks very, very weird and you first have to go into DI to see what it really right. should look like later. So, so that means if you have a very dark environment in the foreground, you also need to darken down your green screen a little bit. And that moment suddenly where your green screen is like a stop lower, suddenly your tracking marks, the little LED marks, are way too bright and they come out white. Right. And the thing is also that, that even though we tried to find uh, LEDs that had, um, had a very wide... Um, oh, Texas? Yeah. Yeah, exactly. It was still it was a big difference from, from, from which side you would, uh, you would shoot them and, and uh, literally had like up to, up to two stops different, uh, difference in between, uh, hmm. uh, in between the angle. So it was not that successful, I have to say. I uh, would definitely rethink that for the, for the next movie. Green screen, by the way, anyway, next movie would like to shoot blue screen again. I know a green screen is kind of hip and everybody does it, but I don't What's want to do it. Here's one thing is um, when you shoot for like 60 days, 
and everything is green all the time, you get postal. You really, at some point in time, like everybody gets like, you, everything looks green. You, you, went, you go out and suddenly everything is green. It's, it's, it's very weird. It sticks with you and it, it's, it's odd. Blue is, is not as offensive. It's very weird. If you're in the blue screen stage and so on, it's, it's more mellow. There's something about it that's really nice. But that aside, that's one thing, of course. Um, I also, uh, we really have a lot more problems with skin tones uh, to really get the spill out. Because obviously green spill, because of the intensity level, uh, is, uh, has way more spill than you get with blue. And, and the blue spill is very easy to remove. You know, on a face, I mean, you take the blue channel out, the blue channel only has a, mm. I don't know what it is, I think a 20% luminance or so versus green, which is like, what, a 70% luminance but, but or so. But also that's why you like it, right? Because, well, it doesn't in get way, yes, lost in the blacks. Yes, but I think, you know, with blue, you have to light a little bit more careful, but it gives you way less problems later, especially color correction. Okay, well, when you're doing those tests, I want to come and have a look because, yes. uh, I don't know, I'm not sure about that. I, <laughs> okay. Ability to lose the blues into black, and then mm -hmm. if you have to start hitting the blacks hard, especially on these cameras that have compression, mm -hmm. where because obviously in the old days they used to hide the film grain in the blue channel, and that's why we veered away from yeah. it on film. And it is, by the way, that's that's a test. Oh, I, I forgot actually to <laughs> to mention at the beginning when we did the test with the red. Yeah, the red had a huge difference between the blue channel and the oh, green yeah. channel. So that's why I immediately said, okay, we can absolutely not go with blue. So we ordered all the green screen material and so on. Then later the Ari came along. And when we did the test with the Ari, we noticed actually there the difference between the blue channel in terms of noise is a lot less, a lot less, and, and more at, usable. And at that era in the red, you also had a big difference between daylight and tungsten as well. Which, okay, that's, yes, that's right. Back that's true, then. Uh -huh. mm -hmm. Were you shooting, I, I presume you were shooting more daylight on this film? Uh, yes, well, we did. We had, had all uh, HDMI, uh, HMIs uh, on the ceiling and, uh, and tried to light everything with daylight, yeah. Right. Yeah. So apart from the green screen and blue, mm. um, was there anything else from a visual effects point of view? Because you really pull the rabbit out of hat here. I mean, this, this is an astonishing um, effort given that you didn't have an unlimited mega budget. Mm. I'm wondering going forward into the next big feature, were there any sort of things you know, that you invented to get around problems on this tighter budget that you might use again? Um, uh, yes, absolutely. Uh, um, one of the uh, very interesting things that we did uh, with ION again, with Fusion, was we had a we created a 3D water system directly in the compositing software. So oh, really? a lot of our river water yeah. um, in some of the closer shots and so on are done directly and rendered and created and almost in real time directly inside the Fusion software. And that, for instance, that alone was one of those things that helped us so much because otherwise, obviously, you know, you have to, uh, you know, create the water, light the water, render the water, then you see it doesn't quite work and you go back and, and so that saved us so much time. So presumably um, that was some sort of field approach for a surface water, right? Because that wouldn't, I couldn't imagine that being able to do volumetrics for... It's, it's true 3D. Oh, really? It was a true 3D. It was literally like you would do it in, uh, in 3D. You have a, uh, a plane, basically, with tons of polygons on it and they would actually be fully displaced, fully in hmm. 3D. Well, and, and we would be able then, of course, to use uh, the reflections from other 3D layers onto that water too. Right. Because it was such a 3D compositing environment. Yes, it was 100% really full. Every, everything was really fully 3D composited in there. And that, uh, is, that, that really was, a, was the biggest revelation uh, that we would like to shift more and more, I think, from 3D into compositing. And also, uh, you know, train uh, some of our 3D people in more in compositing. So we get uh, 
we go back to, it's interesting how it, how it shifted, I think, because um, over the years, I think about 10, 15 years ago, everybody was a generalist. Um, you know, a lot of lot of the companies had 3D and 2D together. There was no, you know, they would 3D guys were created and also would composite everything. Then it slowly split apart. Now I think up to you know one or two years ago, we had it extremely compartmentalized. Where three now, okay, you have modelers, texturers, riggers, shaders, uh, lighting uh, TDs, animators, character animators, and and hard surface animators, and so on, and. Um, what I noticed also talking to the other big studios like, like Imageworks and so on, um, everybody is going now slightly back, back from that compartmentalization where you try really to, um, to train the people to look at the bigger picture and try to figure out, okay, what is really the best tool for what? And especially there, I think the integration with where, where 2D and 3D comes, comes more together is something that, that will happen more and more in the future where I'm guessing, literally, that in five to ten years or so, there's not really going to be a difference anymore between a compositing package and a 3D package. I think a lot of it will just merge. So you mentioned Fusion. What were you generating your 3D assets in? What was the... Uh, we did everything in 3D Studio Max. Right. And so that was rendering in what? Uh, rendering in V-Ray. V-Ray. Because yeah. it does look very, well, obviously, realistic. I mean, it, it's mm. the visual authenticity of your visual effects are a very important point for the film because, obviously, mm. the film is challenging some things and if it looked fake as a film that would undermine the central premise. Yeah, it was one of the biggest challenges and the fears that we had because obviously you make a movie like 2012, there's a there's a certain level of acceptance there from the audience. You know it's you know it's not real, you know it's it's a great ride and so on, but of course you want to try to make it as um, uh, as photoreal as you can. But again, there's an acceptance level there where you said, "Okay, if you fail here and there, it's not the end of the world." Ah, no pun intended. And um, <laughs> but on a on a project like Anonymous, if you fail, it is. It's really a problem because it breaks, it breaks the the, the stride, so to say, of the of the story of the wonderful acting and so on. If you suddenly think, oh wow, wow, this looks like a video game. What's going on? So so we spent a lot of time. I, I went to to England several times to shoot uh, tens of thousands of of stills. Uh, with a Canon 5D and 1D to, um, uh, to uh, we're basically trying to find anything anywhere that's left over, any building that's left over from that time, which you can't find in London. London is pretty much, that's gone, yeah. everything is gone. But, but, uh, but in even Stratford upon Avon, uh, Shakespeare's uh, supposed birthplace and, um, and other places, uh, we visited them all, I shot the hell out of it, and, um, and then we came back, so we had you know, real textures, there was nothing painted. They were all 100% one-to-one put on there. Thanks for that, Mike. And as you may have heard me say in previous episodes, we would love to hear from you about the show. So email us at tv at fxguide.com. And until next time, when we look at the new TV series, Once Upon a Time, see ya. For more industry news, in-depth features, podcasts and forums, check out fxguide.com. And for visual effects training, check out fxphd.com.